You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcasts to listen to more author interviews. Welcome to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. This is Donna Bartlett, your host. Today we have a most interesting topic and experts with us. Today we have Dr. Demetra Antesamaris and Dr. Judah Thornwell with us. And I'd just like to welcome both of you. Hi, Donna. Thanks for having us. Excited. Thank you so much. So just to tell all of our listeners about our guest today, Dee, she is the associate editor of the Senior Care Pharmacist and also an associate professor at the University of Louisville. And Judah is an assistant professor at the University of Louisville. He's also, at the time, um, he was a principal investigator of National Science Foundation Rapid Alliance Study that we're going to be entering into our discussion today. And he's also the CEO of Intrinsica Global Investigator. So welcome both. And I would love to hear more about your backgrounds and what you're doing. And But first, I do want to tell about the two, the editorial and the study that we're going to be talking about today. First is the Senior Care Pharmacist Editorial from the November 2022 publication. And this is from D, and it's looking for disruptive shifts in population health, present opportunities for pharmacy. And the other study that we're going to be reviewing is a study that both of you, Judah and D, that you are both a part of, Transformational Strategies for Optimizing Use of Medications and Related Therapies Through U.S. Pharmacists and Pharmacies findings from a national study. And this can be found in the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association. So just some great articles that we're going to be speaking on today. And really what I'd love to know, first of all, not only about yourselves a little bit more, but can you also just explain population health and maybe how this differs from public health? I know I had to do a little bit of reading on that. Yeah, I guess I'll 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 let Judah start because he can explain a little bit about his background and knowledge and his expertise in population health. Uh, So happy to do that, Dee. So public health originally started with, you know, looking at disease transmission through water or through air and then healthy air and healthy water. And we all think of our public health department, you know, making sure that our, our food and restaurants are safe. But in the last 20 or 30 years, the whole field of public health has has evolved and is continuing to evolve very quickly into this broader space that we call population health. And population health looks at everything that affects a person's health. It's not just diseases inside your food or in the water, but it's like, do you have a good job? Do you have enough food to eat? Do you have a good home? Are you dealing with social determinants of health issues like racism? It's sort of looking at anything that might affect the health and well-being of people. So population health is kind of this big evolving idea. And I think, and and many of us in our school of public health, think that the future of the whole field is more population health focused because when we look at, say, the global population, you know, the question is, what can we all do to create health and well-being for everyone across everything in society. So 
I don't know, Dee, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good illustration that it kind of started out as, you know, what is it in our environment that's a big threat to drilling way down to the individual? And population health primarily is about the risk mitigation for specific populations, which by definition makes it very individual and geographic. So it's like the difference between applying a clinical practice algorithm to a huge population and then translating it to specific at-risk populations. You have to consider all of these different factors, uh, food insecurity, income, disparities, health beliefs and practices and access and all these things. And the article that was, you know, I wrote the editorial was kind of speaking to how the pharmacist skill set is really well aligned to help implement improved population health and risk mitigation measures. Yeah. So in I have to say when I was reading the editorial, D, that really interesting that there's this the statistics for pharmacy and where that lies for us as we move forward and how we might have to think as pharmacists when looking through the lens of population health. Can you explain that a little bit more? Right. Yeah. The U.S. or United States Bureau of Labor Statistics has released some rather dismal forecasts for pharmacist jobs from the years 2020 to 2030. It actually reported a negative 2% decline in pharmacist job positions, which, as you might know, has been driving a lot of kind of mitigation of pharmacy training, pharmacy class sizes, and, and things are not looking very optimistic for pharmacists. But you must consider that what the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics is predicting are the jobs of today, the pharmacist jobs of today. And it's important to consider what the pharmacist jobs of tomorrow will be. And when I was asked to write this editorial about, you know, looking forward in pharmacy, it was just after Judah, myself, and our team had completed the National Science Foundation Rapid Alliance study, which looks at how the pharmacy sector can help improve population health, but specifically medication management. And, and that study really kind of brought to light the many different ways that pharmacists interact in population health, including accessibility to vaccines during the COVID pandemic, accessibility to chronic disease medications at a time when the health facilities were closed down. People could not go in and get their refills. And Dr. Thornwell or Judah really um, brought to bear some very interesting perspective. And uh, I'd like to ask if he could explain his expertise in um, health, health science, health systems, collaboration science, economics, and many things. So my expertise, probably the simplest way to think about both my PhD and the research I do is I'm like a collaboration scientist. And the question that we deal with in collaboration science and healthcare is how do we move from a world of very siloed organizations where every group is doing their own thing to a world where we interconnect and work together collaboratively and how do we make that transition? Well, obviously, in the last 20 years, the last 10 years, the factor that's driving change and driving collaboration 
is digital technology. The fact that we can get on a Zoom call or we can share information through electronic health records or we can interconnect health information systems through health information exchanges or through national standards. I mean, there's this massive change going on with interconnectedness of data and processes, right? And so if you think about it like that, you can sort of see this mega trend in the US and worldwide where we're moving from a world of organizations, each in their own little silo. This pharmacy does this, this nursing home does that, and so on, to a world of networks where everything's interconnected and where even the nature of a job or our work is interconnected. Like, you know, we're working from home or I can do telehealth or I can get information from a specialist in India. Like the world is changing so quickly. So that's been my sort of special area of expertise. And, and the book we wrote on population health laid out a lot of these megatrends. And D, I think, I think why you asked me this question is this applies very, very directly to the pharmacist role in the modern and future world, where there are all kinds of new opportunities emerging for what we've called in our research team-based care or interprofessional care where the future are interprofessional teams with physicians, nurses, and very importantly, pharmacists working together collaboratively, often supported by new digital technologies. And the whole paradigm of care is shifting from a physical location-based model to this more networked-based model. So that's the mega trend, I think. Dee, was that kind of what you wanted me to talk about a little bit? Yes, because... When you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics prediction that the pharmacy sector is going to lose 2% of their jobs in the next decade, it kind of reflects a stubborn problem that the pharmacy sector has been in for a long, long time, and, and that is those silos that we've discussed. And there are so many wonderful peer-reviewed scholarship reports of the importance of pharmacist contribution, the skills that pharmacists can bring to bear, especially medication management, yet the pharmacy sector still sits aside in a silo. And that, that is why, in terms of pharmacists being integrated in the kind of move, there's a major shift towards population health and healthcare delivery, we must get over that. We must learn to collaborate. And we, we actually, I think, need some help from collaboration science experts to do that. Mm, Dee, Dee, I got, I've got one other comment there. One of the findings in, in our study, so, so we, we worked with most of the national associations, a, APHA, ASHP, NACDS, et cetera. We actually worked quite closely with ASHP. And one of the findings was that in the inpatient and health systems environment, there's a lot of growth in these interprofessional care team models. And there's actually a lot of evidence that, that in these inpatient settings, you can create new value that can actually create new revenue streams through value-based care contracts, ACOs, this kind of thing. And so as the world is shifting towards, you know, away from just volume towards value, that was a model where we saw growth. And so one of the questions is whether we might actually see continued growth in pharmacy jobs, but more in these integrated care settings. 
and and that would extend even to nursing homes and you, you know i mean it's it's how do we put the person in the center of the care processes that are involved so that was my final thought on that so i just love the information both of you are providing and it's exciting it's, it really has to be looked at an exciting time for pharmacy <laughs> and for yeah. pharmacists and to move forward with you know, change is scary, but change can also be really wonderful too and really open up some doors. And hopefully, you know, we can break down some of these silos and work together more so and see that in education, as you guys, I'm sure, experience too, is the whole push for that interprofessional education too. So hopefully we have been trending in that area in setting up students and future pharmacists to work in these groups. So it's exciting to hear what you're seeing and exciting to see what we're teaching too. And yeah, and, and you know, I just school. would point out that pharmacists have demonstrated that in interdisciplinary and interprofessional teams in working on population health problems, I mean, they're batting a thousand. I mean, um, in, you know, in our editorial, we pointed out that an example would be the New Mexico Department of Health you know, fairly rural state, they relied on embedded community pharmacies to administer treatment for tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a 75% completion rate. And because our audience are pharmacists, you could understand that that is not to implement, but it's that relationship that pharmacists have with the patients, with the communities. And it's again, very local in culture and ecosystem. So there's lots of evidence that, that we can do it and that we're good at it. And so as the reimbursement system shifts towards population health, and and what I mean by that is a shift away from fee-for-service and episodic care to outcomes-driven care. Yes. And Dee, I think you talk about that too in your editorial when you're talking about the trajectory towards population health and how it's focused on that healthcare delivery. And, And you talk about some of these things like the outcomes, but also avoidance of hospitalizations and institutional care and preventative care. And I know even for me and many of us on the geriatric side of things, we're looking at continuing preventative care in our older adults and making certain that they're optimizing their medicines and only on medicines that are necessary. But we're looking at this throughout the whole spectrum. Could you tell us more about the trajectory towards population health? And I think you mentioned too that Judah is a force in that area as well. Yeah, actually, um, the little diagram inside the editorial kind of shows a trajectory from, it's a historical trajectory from the 1980s, 70s, when everything was fee-for-service. So there was an incentive for episodic care, right? There was an incentive that, okay, every time you, you see the provider, you know, somebody gets paid. And then in the mid-80s, they went to fee for diagnosis. Some of us remember diagnosis-related groups, right, where you got hospitalized for maybe heart failure. The hospital would be paid for that, you know, heart failure episode, a bundled amount of money. And the sooner they could kick you out, the more change they kept, right? So they had an Mm -hmm. incentive actually to not deliver quite enough care. (laughs) And with the Affordable Care Act, we had a more value-based care incentive, which got disrupted, you know, um, COVID has not helped, but COVID has also revealed the vulnerability of populations who have fallen through the value-based care uh, cracks, you might say. So 
so the push towards population health and risk management is is front and center right now. Would you have any thoughts about that, Judah? Yeah, A, I, I totally agree. Secondly, I remember Governor Mike Levitt, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, said to me and a group of us in one conversation that it's hard to see what's going on because what we're talking about is like a 40-year shift and we're halfway through the 40-year changeover from volume to value-based care. When you're in the year-by-year kind of stuff, it's very volatile, but the, the mega trends that Dee is talking about, you know, I, I would argue 20 years from now, these trends will be playing out big time. And, and pharmacists should, should pay attention to that because that's where the future is going. Yeah. The second thing is D and I, our whole team, we were astonished in our study when we did the numbers and read the literature and said, there's $500 billion per year of excess spending because of medication non-optimized use. And this is causing hospitalizations, emergency room visits, and doctor visits that are costing $500 billion a year more than if we were optimizing it. We could not believe those numbers. Like we couldn't get our head around it because that's more money on the negative effects of non-optimized meds than we're spending on the medications to begin with because that's like 350 to 400 billion in the US. So the other thing with value is as we learn how to, to get the, the purchasers, Medicare, Medicaid, the health plans, the big employers, to pay for value, we should be able to see a shift where some of that $528 billion of excess spending can get managed. And you can imagine there's new jobs for pharmacists who are part of solving that problem, which then helps people get healthier, especially older people, because that's the biggest cohort. And then that creates some net gain across the the uh, ecosystem, and that should, in a in a rational world, that should result in new jobs and opportunities to pay pharmacists for medication therapy management and all kinds of you know, patient support, so that we're just uh, we're not sending people to hospitals when they don't have to go. So that that's kind of, I sound a little bit like a preacher there, but we we thought that's like a moral imperative. Like this is. Yeah. How can we possibly live with ourselves if there's that much of a problem? Especially juxtaposed against the fact that really no one pays for medication management in any meaningful way right now. And the result is that 500 billion, you know, loss plus lives. I believe it was estimated that 276,000 lives a year, you know, are caused by polypharmacy, non-optimized medication use. And that would rank medication misadventure, as they say, as the third leading cause of death pre-COVID. Yeah. And and I would absolutely say the solution, like like Dee said, what has to like like in our report, the number one thing in our study was we have to do payment and practice reform. And we and Medicare, Medicaid, and private pay have to pay for these value-added services by pharmacists. It's mm-hmm. it's impossible to ask pharmacists to do all this work for no money. So mm-hmm. part of the strategy here is making the case to do payment reform. Absolutely. So I'm so glad I was going to shift over to 
The other uh, study that we're talking about and the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association in talking about just these strategies and optimizing and probably breaking down silos too, right? And as to how pharmacists and pharmacies can become integrated in this changing world of healthcare that is necessary. So with that, you had mentioned, and we talked, we just talked about this a little bit, but this non-optimized medication therapies and, and these stats are so staggering for us. But you also, if you want to explain a little bit more about what this study is and, and exactly what came out of it, but there's also recommendations that came out of this. And I'd really love you to touch on or explain some of like the the number one findings, if you will, of of some of the recommendations that you came up with in this study. Before we get to that, the other thing I wanted to point out is that we're also facing a demographic cliff, you might say, that's going to catalyze an opportunity for change and increase pressure on pharmacists to fill gaps. And uh, that's simply just the retiring and resignation of a huge swath of population. So there's not enough care providers for the population that's out there. Also, the pandemic particularly caused a lot of retirement in the healthcare uh, sector because people just got burnt out. We also have retiring healthcare educators and pharmacists can fill a lot of those roles in in addition to community educators, so that's a population health role as well. So all of these things will catalyze some of the aspects of recommendations that we found in the Rapid Alliance study. So Donna, it's funny how things go in life, mm-hmm. but it was March of 2020 and we were all busy doing research essentially on interoperability and data sharing, which we've been doing for a few years. We were, we're actually working with Sanofi, the National Science Foundation. And all of a sudden it's March, 2020 <laughs> and it's COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And D was part of these conversations. Like, like it was like, what we're doing doesn't matter anymore. The world just changed like overnight. Yeah. And so we went out to Sanofi and a few others and, and we basically said, you know, we think we need to just change directions. What do you want us to study? And we're population health, public health people. So we're not like pharmacy people, although Dee has been my good friend for a long time. But the answer was, we think that pharmacies and pharmacists are going to be right in the center of the COVID response with vaccines and tests. And, and like, it's a crisis, like study that. Like, so by June, we put the study together. We reached out to the national associations and, and our goal was to assess what pharmacists and pharmacies could do as a sector to help with COVID. And we did a series of focus groups and surveys and had a pretty good representation from across the country. Yeah. And, and then we tried to put it all together. And that's where we started going. Can this possibly be, can it possibly be that we've, uh, it's not just vaccines, it's a $500 billion bigger problem? Like, Wow. Mm. And but also through that discussion, there was a one, there was a comfort because we were public health and population health systems people. So we weren't we weren't we from outside of pharmacy. So we kind of took a look at the whole system from the outside. And that seemed to be quite helpful. And that's you know, that's where the study comes from. Mm -hmm. But also we asked, okay, Houston, we have a problem. What can we do about it? 
how do you solve a $500 billion problem? Well, not with a bunch of $100,000 studies. <laughs> it's like you, sure, you have to like yeah. focus on solutions that are the right size for the problem, right? Mm. So Donna, as, as you as you know, in the in the study, we came up with four key strategies that would, over a, say a decade, need to happen to solve this problem. Number one and most important was changing the payment and practice model so that pharmacists could get paid meaningfully for providing medication therapy management type of services. But that was not just individuals. It had to be integrated with sophisticated technology like MTM, decision support technology, and that kind of thing. Secondly, though, you can't do effective payment and practice services if you don't have good patient data from across the care system. And interoperability or lack of interoperability was the second huge challenge. It's like the data from the doctor and the hospital and the nursing home and the individual are still far from integrated. We've got to be able to move the data around and basically have a unified personal health record that puts everyone on the same page and puts the, the pharmacist in the center of those decisions with good data. Third, we're not measuring the right things. We're, we're all over the place. We need to unify what we're measuring and get unified measurement of health and well-being on the one hand and of what it means to have a healthy and effective medication regime. Like we've got to simplify and manage our measurements. And then fourth, there needs to be a ton of research and it needs to be not each little university doing their own little projects mm -hmm. in their silos. How do we build a consortium of you know, 40, 50, 100 universities where we're pooling data, pooling research? And those were the four key strategies that we recommended in our paper. And we thought that roughly an investment of $5 billion over 10 years could drive systems level change that could result in maybe savings of 200 billion a year out of that 500 billion a year and saving millions of lives and avoiding illness and making people healthier and happier right. along the way as the most yeah. important outcome. Yeah. And as we go back to previously that trajectory, right? Keeping people out of the hospitals and quality of life, things such as that, that are so important. My eyes are wide open. I feel like they have been somewhat, but you've just really open them today with some of these ideas and some of these statistics. It's staggering to hear these numbers. So now we've talked about like being in silos, if you will, and just curious about other stakeholders. And in your studies, like, were you able to think about maybe the next studies that have to happen in order to break down all of these silos, if you will, of all of these different healthcare providers. And like you said, even this 40, 50, however many universities to work on mm -hmm. studies together. How do we break down those silos, whether it be geographical or whether it be, you know, the healthcare disciplines that we're in? So kind of like because the Megatrans D was talking about where in our professional team-based care is the future and value is the future. So how do you get there, right? We concluded that it needed to be an all-stakeholder strategy, not a pharmacist sector strategy to solve this problem. So you have to have physicians at the table. You have to have nursing at the table. You have to have 
digital health technology people at the table. You have to have health plans. You have to have public payers and private payers. And none of these silos can solve this problem on their own. In fact, that's the problem is they all do their own thing and they don't talk. But how do you actually bring them all together to come up with approaches to solve the $500 billion problem? So that is our a limitation of the study was it was kind of pharmacy pharmacist centric. And the next big like direction is bringing all these stakeholders together and having them co-create a shared infrastructure. And for example, Donna, you know, we know that physicians see the world of medications differently than pharmacists. They both have valid, important perspectives. One of the problems we identified is there's not great back and forth between the physician community and the pharmacist community. And part of that is tied to pay, lack of payment models and, and, and all, you know, just the historical silos that exist. So it's critically important that we do better at bringing physician communities patient communities and pharmacist communities together to co-create solutions. And we don't exactly know what those will look like, but that's why we need to do research and run a bunch of different trials, you know, because it has to be co-created by everyone. Sure. Well, and also in the editorial, one of the important parts of uh, conclusions is that for pharmacists to look towards the jobs of the future, we have to, as as mentioned, invest in ourselves. So we need to be able to speak the language of our collaborators. And some pharmacists do. Some pharmacists serve as health administrators in the form of the head of the PT committee or in you know, the corporate and health system world. But every pharmacist should broaden their skill set, understand some of the population health skills that include you know, health beliefs, community health. If you notice, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts a humongous need for more health administrators. While the pharmacy sector is going to lose 2% of their job, the pharmacy administrator demand is going to go up by, I think it was 13 or 16%. So, so it, would, it would behoove us in our education to broaden our education to include the training for of today, but maybe de-emphasize some of the skills that are going to go away, maybe be taken over by technicians and be ready to integrate ourselves into population health. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right with that, Dee. And I was, I want to bring that up too about investing in yourself. So this is really all pharmacists calling, calling on all pharmacists to take this approach, which is so important. And I always love to say, you know, one of the favorite wrap ups, if you will, of, of these segments, I always like to ask, you know, what can we do to change or, or how do we proceed forward? And, and even like how are we teaching our students too? And maybe what do students have to start thinking about upon graduation as well? So, so I think you, really showed that pharmacists need to step in and really start thinking about this and, and making shifts and changes. But do you have any words of wisdom for, for our students that are going to be graduating soon too and, and how yeah. they might step forward in this new world that is changing for pharmacy? Well, a couple of things. I don't think that the statistics that we've presented that 500 plus billion lost costs and 276,000 lives per year is going to get any better on its own. 
because the number of drug products released to the market is only increasing exponentially. And of course, there isn't any dedicated incentive for medication management that's really kind of universal. So one thing you can count on is that this problem is not going to go away. But the other thing you can count on is if the healthcare system's shifting towards population health and risk mitigation, we should take it upon ourselves to either self-train or look for formal training in population health, public health, like, like work on an MPH, business, all the things that help teams deliver care, psychology, sociology. You know, I know every student just really dreads the idea of more school. I mean, it, we dread the idea of more, you know, residency time as well. But if you're going to invest this much in a career, you might as well anticipate what's going to happen next and innovation and prepare yourself for it. Yeah, absolutely. And keep learning, right? I keep think, learning. I think we've all shown that in our areas and it is something that speaks volumes and you've got to be able to move forward and adapt, which I think is what we're all doing. And Go ahead, B. Yeah. Imagine if you just picked up a second language, okay? Or if you already have a second language. Yeah. You already become kind of the facilitator to help at-risk populations. Mm -hmm. That's all. I mean, as simple as that. Yeah. Two other thoughts on that. Please, yeah. Number one is, I'm looking at a book here called The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future. Mm -hmm. And it talks about this mega trend where old style education, you go to school and get your degree. New style education is everything's online. You get badges, you get certificates. <laughs> and, and so go learn stuff that you want to know using these low cost online resources that are just exploding everywhere. That's one tip. Another thing I, I heard is a number of pharmacists who are like dealing with this kind of uncertain environment, mm-hmm. you know, in the old world, you had one job and you went to it. But in the new world, you know, it's the gig economy. It's flexible. We can work from home. We can work through our phones. We can work from Costa Rica. <laughs> um, so I'm hearing that there, that a lot of PharmDs and pharmacists, you know, they might do a, get take on a 30-hour gig at a traditional pharmacy setting. But you know, do some other kind of work that's virtual or telehealth or get involved in some kind of population health or administration or business sides. The combination of very accessible online learning resources that are cheap and being able to do gigs and projects and contracts, Mm -hmm. that's a way to learn, to get going, to do something differently. And you'll be amazed at the doors that can open when you are in a different part of the world. That's awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for both of you being here and sharing this wealth of knowledge. But also, I just want to back up for a minute. And Judah, when you were talking about the shift in March of 2020, how many times do we keep our head down and just go, you know, oh, we got to keep working on this despite, but you guys shifted and you made changes according to like a drop of a hat as to what changes need to be made. So thank you for recognizing and studying the wealth of pharmacies all throughout our country and pharmacists in our position. And I often think that pharmacists were 
a little bit of the unsung heroes <laughs> of COVID. And, but they were really in a, a very, very important part. So thank you for your work in that area and understanding that this is what we can all be doing in order to help each other. So I think that that's amazing. I do want to thank both of you. And I just want to close out by reminding our listeners of the work that you two have done and and what brought us here today. So first is we have with us today, Dr. Demetra Antimissiaris, who wrote the guest editorial for the Senior Care Pharmacist, November 2022 publication, Looking Forward, Disruptive Shifts in Population Health, Present Opportunities for Pharmacy. And then for the both of you for writing um, for the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association, Transformation Strategies for Optimizing Use of Medications in Related Therapies through U.S. Pharmacists and Pharmacies, Findings from a National Study. So I just want to say thank you to both of you for that, Dr. Judah Thornwell and Dr. Dimitra Antimissiaris. So thank you both for being here today. Donna, it was our great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. And I always like to thank our listeners too. I hope you learn just as much as I have. Read more and study more and take the advantage of everything that was stated here and continue to learn and grow in your profession. Thank you all so very much. This is the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. This is Donna Bartlett, your host. Take care and be well. You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcasts to listen to more author interviews.